I had a chance to try out for a Division One basketball team, and I wanted more badly to have an excuse for failing than I wanted to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I've regretted my whole life. And basically what happened was I didn't want to prepare because if I prepared, if I worked as hard as I possibly could and then failed, that would mean I wasn't good enough. But if I didn't prepare, I would have the excuse of saying, well, if I had prepared, you know, I'm pro- I'm, I probably could have made it. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, designing your intentional life, homesteading, gardening, and rediscovering culture and tradition. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I have Jeffrey Long with me from Long Story Farms on Twitter. And Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be here. So your pin tweet really is intriguing about when I started this journey yep. to become a farmer, I was only doing what five-year-old me always knew I would do. So you were on uh, Farm Hop Life with Matt last year in January of last year. So quite a while, you must have been like one of his first uh, guests yep. and you went through your journey on there. So I don't want to retread that. What would you say to yourself? You could give advice to your five-year-old self, or like you said, your third-year-old self. I think the biggest challenge I had as a teenager and a young adult was it really came down to self-doubt and fear of failure. Mm. I'll share a story I don't think I shared on that podcast, but I actually, I had a chance to try out for a division one basketball team and I wanted more badly to have an excuse for failing than I wanted to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that I've regretted my whole life. And basically what happened was I didn't want to prepare because if I prepared, if I worked as hard as I possibly could and then failed, that would mean I wasn't good enough. But if I didn't prepare, I would have the excuse of saying, well, if I had prepared, you know, I'm pro- I'm, I probably could have made it. So it was this like lie that I told myself about, you know, what it took to be, to be great at something. And so that fear of failure just kind of haunted me as a teen and a young adult. I mentioned on Matt's podcast, you know, there's another guy on Twitter, uh, Anarcha Contrarian, who talk, he, he, he talks about ways you can stay. But I was very much in that, as I shared with Matt, you know, one of the kids that kind of like people saw potential in, in me and they said, hey, you're too good to stay here. You're too smart to stay here, whatever it was. And uh, encouraged me to leave the rural community where I grew up to cut ties essentially with those more agrarian roots. Um, and I didn't have enough um, of my sense of self developed at that time to, to resist that. So I probably would go back and say, follow those dreams and don't be afraid to fail. It'll work out. You're, you're better than you thought you were. You're more capable. You're more de- per- perseverant and, ter- and, and determined than you thought you were if you just will, won't give in to the fear. That's probably what I'll tell myself. No, that's great. I think another thing is on the other side, the regrets using that same excuse on the other side to say, well, if I would have done this, I could have made it or it would have turned out differently. That's getting over over that and living with failures part yep. of the gig, right? So, yep. Yeah, the, the great irony of that story, and I've, I've, I was talking about this with a, a group, a men's group in my church, actually. Um, the the great irony of that is my dad actually became friends with one of the um, assistant coaches and the, the assistant coach remembered me and even said, well, yeah, he was good enough, but we just didn't need him. And so that fed my, the, that fed the ego, right? And mm-hmm. it, it fed into that, my willingness to believe that excuse that I made for myself for a long time. And 
it took a it took a little maturity to look back on that and go, wait a minute, you're you keep telling yourself this lie. Essentially, you know, you're you're telling yourself a lie and you're you're not um yeah, so really wrestling with that personally and when I get off excuse difference in how and how you approach other aspects or other um endeavors in your life, you know. Right. Yeah, definitely. So you farm in yeah. South Carolina. What's your cornerstone right. crop or animal? that you have down there what's your favorite or cornerstone you know thing on your farm yeah we, yeah cornerstone right now would be pork um we we run uh berkshire Osabaugh cross pigs hmm. we keep about um right now in the high teens to 20 at a time um and uh in addition to that we do uh poultry so chickens ducks turkeys um that's really our focus right now i think we'd, we'd like to to add um sheep at some point um but right now it's really the cornerstone is pork we're i've been referred to as a sausage man um a couple of times <laughs> at some farmers markets uh we carry um about 10 or 12 different flavors of sausage at any given time so really okay quite a variety yeah great so we kind of lean into that yeah <laughs> people love it so it's good so you also you were talking on matt's podcast about your food forest do you mm -hmm. graze the pigs in the food forest not the pigs the trees are still a little bit too small for that um mm -hmm. we do we do run chickens in tractors through the food forest and mm -hmm. uh that has made a huge difference in uh you know soil well i'll i'll say weed succession because uh, we don't really have any planted you know uh we, we planted ryegrass crimson clover and all seed radish and vetch as cover crops back in 2017 or 18 we do reseed with rye in the winter but we haven't put any of the other stuff down and we get a crop every year of all of that wow so it's been we just let it seed out we mow it but we we run the the chickens and, and the ducks free range in that area and the chickens uh, we run through in tractors and it's really productive. We've, we've almost eliminated broom sedge in the areas where we, where we run the tractors, um, which is, uh, it's an indicator that you've got lack of calcium, low pH. Um, and we're really seeing a change both in, you know, soil, the way the soil looks, uh, tilth, et cetera. And we're also seeing, the thing that most surprises me is the weed succession, how that changes under grazing pressure. Um, obviously, it changes even with mechanical means like mowing, but with the grazing, it seems that the nutrient profile is altered more substantially and um, definitely see a difference in what germinates and what thrives in those areas. So very interesting. Wow. How does it secede and what kind of things become more prominent? Well, so um, I need to do more. Uh, I need to get better educated about what species I'm seeing because I just know that they're different than the other ones. But I'll take <laughs> a stab at it. Take a stab at it. So we had um, what where I first noticed this was we put, um, we put we had a batch of chickens. We had the premier one netting. Um, we moved them from one area to another, and then we we left them too long. And then we moved them back to where they had just grazed. And so there was this section that just got really overgrazed. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was a lot of um, 
goldenrod came up there mm. and um, a lot of dog fennel showed up there did not see um, the same you know grasses uh, as more broadleaf weeds and not as much or not as many grasses whereas in the part that had just been you know grazed uh, maybe more appropriately less intensively um, more of the grasses um, yeah different just different types of things I'll have to do more research on that and, and come back and tell you because I uh, it was really startling to me how different it was and then um, not long after that, we moved a batch of chickens into the garden and let them just completely wipe out the weeds. And it went from, uh, cra- again, from crabgrass to broadleaf weeds in the summer, in this, in the hot part of the summer. So I just thought it was very interesting, very different. You know, and, and I, I was listening to John Kemp's podcast and he had a lady on, she was talking about worm casting. She was saying that parts per trillion concentration put down with the seeds can change which plants germinate. And I, had never considered that. I mean, I'd, I'd been wondering about this weed succession thing, and I still do. I, I really haven't heard anyone definitively talk about it. Uh, and I'm probably just ignorant because I'm sure there's research out there somewhere. But so it just really struck me. I heard that in that podcast. I'm like, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing this difference in you know either nitrogen or maybe some micronutrients or or the microbes in the in the, the chicken manure uh, that's being laid down, you know, continually while they're sitting on top of this dirt. And uh, they, they wiped out a fire ant hill, completely just ate all the ants in the fire ant hill, which was really interesting as well. That's great. Um, and yeah, it totally changed the weed succession in the garden, though. Like I said, from grasses to produce. And I don't know why. I don't know what the mechanism is. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have swales then with the trees and the and the other so uh, the, bushes? So the food forest is pretty flat. The, where we have more, uh, we do have some... I, I can't really call them swales, but we have some old terraces. It's an old terraced field where mm-hmm. we where we have the cows, and so that area does have essentially functioning as swales. Um, there are terraces that that do have a kind of a swale formation because it's a, like a berm on the on the downhill side. Sure. Um, and we have a lot of like um, bulrushes and other aquatic plants growing in those areas in the in the wetter parts of the year that's pretty cool what kind of trees um, do you have growing in there so let me go back to the food forest in the food forest we have um i'd guess 120 or so different trees wow um we've it's about three acres uh there's and i'm including berry bushes so don't uh, but i have we have service berry mulberry uh mayhaw um Loquat, pawpaw, chestnut, black walnut, filberts, hazelnuts, blackberry, raspberry, gumi, persimmon, uh, pomegranate, peach, plum, apple, and pear. Trying to think if there's anything else I've left out. You still get cold enough where the apples still thrive. They do okay. They do okay. honestly we've had some really weird weather the last several seasons um normally like i don't know if if people know this but south carolina is actually a bigger exporter of peaches than georgia Hmm. so um we're the palmetto state but we're also the really the peach state you know just to poke poke the georgians a little bit but um (laughs) so peaches actually go really well where we are there's a lot of uh peaches 
all around us. Not necessarily in our county, but in neighboring counties, a little bit north of us, a little bit south of us, and to the uh, west of us, lots and lots of peaches. Um, and we have had a couple of decent harvests in the, in the five or six years that we've been growing the, the, the trees planted. But like this year, we had a really, really warm early, you know, late winter, early spring, and everything popped early. And then we had a, a hard frost. And so we didn't get a lot of good fruit setting on the peaches and pears and things. So, but we did get really good fruit setting on the apples. So we've got, it looks like we have a bumper crop of apples this year. We also had a really deep freeze around December where I lost my entire water system. Oh, wow. I think I talked about that um, also on one of Matt's, uh, Matt DeRozier's men's forum. Yeah, so, you know, really deep freeze that was down to like nine degrees for three days um, and a late frost and the apples seem to be doing really well this year. So we'll see. Um, it's a little bit too warm for apples where we are. The Generally, there, there are southern varieties that, that do better where we are, but I have had difficulty kind of, yeah, I shouldn't say difficulty. I haven't worked hard enough to find them. I know they're around. I just need to go, go get them. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are some warmer weather apples that do better where we are. Um, I need to get some. What right. we have now is the regular, you know, the regular typical stuff, you know. Yeah, so. I like pawpaws too. I've, I've, I've been trying to grow them. They grow along the creeks here, so they're not super awesome grafted pawpaws, but, you know, right. they work good enough. Yeah, I'm hoping we start to see some, some bear some fruit here. We started with bear roots back in 2017, so... This would be, you know, this this year or next, we should start seeing some of these trees bear fruit. Um, Good. You know, the peaches and peaches and stuff we bought as a little bit more mature trees. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I think uh, we also have two. We have a couple of olives. We have some figs. I, I left those out. Um, yeah, so you got some overlap, right? You've got some uh, tropical type overlap with uh, you said pomegranate and figs yep. and things, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Did you just say olives too? Yeah, I, I stupidly invested in some really nice, like nine foot olive trees. And uh, I knew they were going to take a little bit of a beating in the winter, but this last winter really, really hurt them. That, that three day freeze, uh, uh-huh. that hurt them pretty bad. So I, I might have lost a little money there. We'll see. I think one of them still still kicking. I'm, I need to get in there and clean it up, probably prune it back a bit and and see if it comes back. The other one... I don't know if it made it. Uh, I haven't seen much sign of life this this spring, this spring summer. So we'll see how that that one turned out. Sure. Uh, but yeah. Arbequina olives are good for our, our climate. Uh, we're in Zone Eight A, mm-hmm. so these are these are more of like a Mediterranean olive, and they it was a risk, but I got really large trees, hoping that they would be, you know, be able to 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 weather the the colder parts of our winter, but. It's very unusual. We our our lowest temperature is usually around seventeen degrees, and to have temperatures down to nine degrees, especially sustained like we did this past you know around Christmas, very very unusual, and unfortunately does some damage. So you sell your pork and some sausage at the farmers market, right? That's correct. We sell mostly we sell uh, you know ducks, chicken, and pork. We do turkeys seasonally, so we basically grow them for thank for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and we do eggs as well, duck and chicken eggs. We don't do a lot of business with eggs. We don't want to do a lot of business with eggs, but you know we do have enough leftover that you know we take them to the market and we sell a few. Sure. 
Yeah, you had quite a bit of engagement on that tweet about uh, about the sorry state of <laughs> farmers markets. In yeah, twenty twenty three. So that was pretty funny. Um, I want to be kind to everyone about it because I mean, our goal in starting the farm was number one. It was, a, it was I felt called to it. I mentioned this on on the other pod on Matt's podcast, but uh, my mom, my brother, my uh, I'm sorry, my mom, my dad, and my little sister all died of cancer. Oh no! And after my dad died of cancer, I just first of all I lost my dad. Right, and my dad had always been a gardener. He grew up on a farm. And that's really when that dream from the five-year-old me kind of woke up again. And I was like, sure. you know, what am I doing here? I need to be growing some food. I don't, I can't just like drive over to my dad's place and, and grab a few ears of corn and some green beans. I got to grow it now. And so started down that path. So that was one of the motivations was kind of that need to grow some food that, that wanting to be really close, eat close to the earth, grow really clean food because we feel like our food supply is part of the problem with, you know, human health. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a problem for animal welfare as well. And then the other thing was to build community. Like we would love to be the de facto pork supplier for the people that live around us. That would be, that would be goal, you know, a goal for us. It's really difficult though, as a small producer, pricing is very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. So you're going to a farmer's market, knowing that you're pricing a lot of people out of the market, which is unfortunate, but you know, just to cover costs, you, you kind of have to, you know, you're, right. you know, I, I was explaining to some people, I may have done it on that, on that thread in some, in some place on there, I think it might've come up, but um, you know, my processing costs, if you include transportation can be in the four. 34 50 a, a pound when all is said and done now that would be uh for a whole hog sausage which is not usually what we do because we usually do cuts as well but so it's, it's slightly less per pound if you look at it for if you do cuts with some sausage but it's not cheap yeah you know? the processing is a big bottleneck for all meat producers so that's a big challenge which price people out of the market so I was really, what I was talking about, I was trying to give both sides of it. My view is customers aren't showing up to the market with the intention of buying food to take home and cook. A lot of people don't know how to cook. They don't know how to use some of the cuts. I mean, frankly, if I, if I gave most of my customers a, a ham hock, they wouldn't have any idea what to do with it. They would sure. just be like, I'm not Brazilian. I don't know how to make you know feijoada or whatever. The customers that do use those cuts generally are kind of the, the country African-Americans, some of the immigrant communities, Asian and Latin folks, you know, really do more snout to tail, but they're generally not the ones shopping at the farmer's market, right? Because that's not their thing, you know? So it's, it's a weird thing about trying to find that market, not price people out of the market. It's, it's just really hard. And they're not showing up to buy, you know, frozen meat, they walk around, it's hot outside. They're going to walk around for an hour or two. Maybe they're, you know, they're heading, swing by the farmer's market on the way somewhere else. They don't bring a cooler. So that's a challenge um, from the consumer side. And I think from the, uh, from the producer side, like, like I was saying, our costs are high, especially for those of us who do have a day job. You're basically dedicating seven or eight hours on a Saturday one of your only days off during right. the week to, to mm -hmm. go to a market. So is it worth it? Is that the right place to, to market? I, I think 
you know, our strategy was let's start with some farmers markets. Let's be a pillar of our community. Let's show up every Saturday and let's see if we can build community and we'll be building an email list and we'll see how it goes. Maybe once we build an email list, we won't come here anymore. And that's probably what we'll end up heading towards is building an email list and maybe we'll use the farmer's market as a, as a drop-off for a CSA type thing or something. But it's hard as a producer to make that investment of time. And, and I, I'm not faulting anyone, but I think it's just, a, it's just a sad situation because we do give up on building community if we're not you know, talking to each other, seeing each other face-to-face, transacting with each other. But there are ample and good reasons on both sides, consumer and producer, for why that's not working. You know, I get it. Right. It's, that's what I was trying to say, really. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that's a good jumping off point for localism in the in real life community, right? So, so yep. what are you doing to uh, build local community? You know, face to face, small group community. Yeah, so one of the things we actually started a farmers market with my sister and one of her um, her friends. Um, the friend has a a wedding venue. It's a, it's a pavilion. It's called mm-hmm. the old barn farm and it's uh, it's in Chapin, South Carolina. So my sister and, and Charlie Westinger is the lady's name. Um, we got together and we said, Hey, we got this venue. Let's see what we can do with it. You know, let's try to make this, make a run at it. So started doing a, a market first and third Saturdays last July. So it hasn't been going a year yet. It did pretty well when we first started. And we had a goal at the time, and, and I don't know if we'll come back to it because, again, the time commitment is really, really big. But we had a goal at the time of doing classes like maybe, you know, how to use natural dyes, how to save seeds, maybe how to can. Um, we, we had these ideas. We could do some classes, start really building community around that market. Um, so that's one thing. We, we started the market. We haven't gone to, you know, I'll say phase two, but that's one thing we're doing. Um, the other thing is you know, we're trying to we're trying to transact with other people, so that works really well at the market. Like that, the one thing I love about the farmers market is showing up, seeing the other producers that are there, and bartering with them. One of the produce vendors, I love to trade pork chops for some pak choy and and greens or whatever, you know. Um, and there's a microgreens vendor that usually is there, and we we trade with him. Yeah, well, I generally try to trade with everybody that's in the smaller market. I'll try to trade with everybody at the larger ones. You know, I, I don't need that many bracelets and earrings. So, so the, you know, just trying to find ways that we can transact with each other, you know, start sharing some of our, some of our knowledge about, you know, how to do things. One guy, uh, I mean, we're fairly fortunate. I have been gainfully employed and, and, and done okay. So, you know, one of the vendors was kind of stuck in a situation where we were able to help him out by by buying some extra stuff from him and and you know that kind of got him through a tough spot that's maybe a little bit call it charity because we got something in exchange but you know we we tried to see hey if if i'm buying feed can I, how close to my home can i buy the feed not just buy it like at the tractor supply down the road but like how close can i get it milled you know how close can i get it grown and milled etc so we're we're actively looking for those things, you know, trying to stop. It's easy to be addicted to it, but trying to stop with the Amazon purchases and with the big box store purchases when we can. Sure. Um, and and it, it really takes that kind of action. I don't want to be like necessarily an activist consumer, but 
you know, it takes that kind of dedication to transacting with your, your town, the people in your town as much as you can. You know? Yeah, definitely. As well as building those in real life communities, the electronic works really well until they put in a, uh, a blue check mark that you have to pay $8 a month for, and then no one will see your stuff if you don't do it. Yeah, I was, I've actually considered doing the blue check mark because I, I've, I've understood the engagement goes up quite a lot. And, you know, we have been successful in marketing and the farm products through Twitter, which is unusual, but I'm a lot more active there than I'm on Facebook. So, mm-hmm. but we've had quite a few. I'll say customers and friends that we've made that have become real life contacts. There's no less than six or seven that have bought from us and that we've become friends with that we've met in real life. Yeah, that's been fantastic. And and fortunately, some of them are local. There's a, a guy on there on Twitter that goes by the handle Orthodox Mason. He showed up at Farmer's Market in Chapin. And then we went to another one in, in Irmo, which is a, a town just, just south of, of us. Right. Uh, both of them are just south of us. And uh, so he showed up there and, and, you know, he's been posting, Hey, I, I got some fresh bellies from, from long story farms. You know, the other day he posted something about that. And and these are people I would probably never have the opportunity to run into in real life through the connecting on Twitter, finding out we're close to each other and then going out of your way to make sure you meet them. Fantastic. And, you know, um, we've, we've built community. I mean, obviously we're, we're focused near where we are, but, We've got real, you know, real life contacts with people as far north from a farm perspective, as far north as Lexington, North Carolina. And wow. yeah, so, uh, well, one person up that way, there's another person in Asheville that's been a customer, Greenville, South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina. So some, you know, over an hour away, we want to stay more local than that. In general, we're not trying to market that far away, but, you know, when we do run into people through Twitter or, or other you know, venues or whatever, then and we certainly want to provide our products to them. So yeah, it sounds good. And they become friends. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So give them contact information for you for your for your farm and on your in your Twitter handle. Yeah. So long story farms on Twitter, long story farms on Facebook. I think it's long story farms SC as in South Carolina on Instagram. My wife maintains that page. So probably a lot more you know, a lot prettier than what I would do and can actually be reached. You know, we can be reached uh, by phone. Our phone number is on the uh, Facebook page. So, so those are the things that ways that we um, can be reached out, you know, reached via um, social media and phone. Um, and uh, yeah, we're anxious to, to meet people in real life. Um, it's been a fantastic journey. I, I really didn't imagine when we started this that that type of connection would be forged, especially through these online communities that have become real life communities. So, right. Yeah, that sounds uh, good. I, Thanks. I guess one thing I would just add about the, the localism is like you know, we homeschooled our kids. You know, there are places where schools are a big part of the community. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we were traveling a good bit. I was traveling for work. We lived in Chile for uh, several years. Little, little less than three years, and we came back to a community where we, we I do have family connections where we are in Newberry. My father was a chiropractor there. My grandfather was principal of the high school, so we do have really deep family connections there. Our, my family, my, the, the the longs from that I'm part of, have been from that region for uh, well since the 1740s. So, 
a bunch of German, you know, German immigrants came to that area in the 1740s, built a bunch of Lutheran churches. Most of them are yeoman farmers. And, you know, you might say it's in my blood. It's, it's great to be in a place where, in spite of not having that community connection through the schools, where we're able to make other connections through uh, churches, through uh, the farmer's market, and through, you know, being involved in the community, showing up at you know, the development council for your town or the town council or whatever, and just, you know, being there in real life, like you said. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you for listening to Thriving the Future podcast. Like us and follow us on your favorite podcast app. So we've had some interesting episodes here recently, Randy. Also, the how to help kids deal with climate anxiety as well as rediscovering culture and tradition. This is stuff you're not going to hear in other places. So if you like it, shoot us a tip using Venmo at Thriving the Future. Also, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash Thrive in the Future. If you join, you get early episodes. You get the extra episode with Cyprian and as well as a lot of extras. That's patreon.com slash Thrive in the Future. Next time on Thrive in the Future podcast. Next time on Thrive in the Future, Perpin's back in town, and I hope to get him back on here. Check it out.